I do want to give a shout out though, that uh, one of the things about today that you probably may not have front and center on your calendar is that today is the anniversary, the 500 year anniversary of Martin Luther's historic stand at Worms, Worms, Germany. It was in uh, 1517 that uh, Luther posted his 95 Theses. It was then in 1521 that he was called to appear before the Catholic Assembly to answer the charges of heresy. He would not recant, and I'm grateful for that. He took a stand on truth. Uh, He was declared a heretic and then excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And it's uh, individuals like that who, uh, and like Samuel last week, who kind of a shout out for his faithfulness in that. And yet I only mention this because of our text today. There was also some concerning things about Luther and some things that he said. And there are times to where you sit back and you just go, what was up with that? 500 years ago, I want to legitimately rejoice in, and and kudos to a stand that was taken that was important and necessary for the gospel. Go back to 2,500 years more, and we meet David. And David has been endeared to us over these last nine chapters of God's Word, over somewhat some 10, 13 years of time for David, in this, and if you didn't know anything about David, you would follow through that, and, and I think you become very endeared to him. Um, but today in our text, it goes weird. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. I have a satellite image up on the screen that I kind of want to use to. Uh, visually set the context. I'm using a satellite image as well because I want for us just to keep in front of us that these are about real events with real people in real times in real places. Um, These are not uh, fantasy conversations or fantasy people. Uh, This is not fairy tale. This is real. And uh, also I have it up there because just kind of geographically and historically It locates ourselves, and some of that will tie, maybe, Lord willing, here in a little bit. Uh, But before we read uh, our text, uh, I want to give you a warning. Um, You are about to be, uh, I think, as I have been, befuddled and disappointed with David. Um, After all this time we've had, you just kind of go, David, what in the world's going on? It was earlier this week, uh, Karen and I, after reading the, this chapter, we were talking about it, and it's like, we were so disappointed. David, I don't even, not even quite sure all what's going on in the text, but I, I just walk away with a feel like, man, I'm just disappointed, bro. I, I'm just like, you just left me, like, what happened with you? And I want for you to know that's really the place that I'm grabbing from today, and that's where we're going to kind of bring it to later on today. And that's why I've titled this sermon, When People Disappoint. When People Disappoint. It's something that we all struggle with. 
And here's the plan. We're going to kind of go through the text. I'm not going to do too much deep exegetical communication to you on the text. We're going to go through it. I'm going to make some comments and kind of some things. But I really want to then bring it back around to kind of this whole thing off of what really was my own response to the text. Like, David, what? What? We're going to come back to that and the Lord willing be of some help to us. Now, let me begin uh, in verse 1, chapter 27. God, uh, do a work in our lives, I pray. Then David said in his own heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Let's pause there, because that is an intriguing statement. It's an intriguing statement because of actually what was said last Sunday, if you will, from chapter 24, 25, 26. Now, I didn't, uh, didn't have the time to read all of the text. Sorry, I did read a good part of it. Uh, but in the text, uh, that's an interesting statement because of what happens. Go to chapter 26, a paragraph right before this. Look at verse 21. Uh, this is when uh, David and uh, Vishai, uh, they um, come to this uh, point where they walk in the camp. God's just had everyone, uh, Saul's camp, they're sleeping out, and there's a spear, and there's a canteen by Saul, and they take it, very much like when Saul made the restroom break in the cave uh, thing. And, and here uh, in this, it then comes, uh, David then comes out of that, makes his voice to Saul, Saul, and then we come to 21, verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned, David, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. And then you go to verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. It sure sounds like Saul has really turned the corner. It sure sounds like Saul is repenting here. But then you come to verse 1, chapter 27, and David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David is understanding that the words of Saul don't have a trust factor behind it. And David is really in this text here, he's like, one of these days I'm going to die by Saul, whatever he said. By the way, trust is lost quickly. Trust takes time to earn back. And here, uh, David has this, one day I'm going to perish at the hand of Saul. Let's keep reading. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. In other words, I'm going to step out of Israel. I'm going to step out of God's place. I'm going to go over to where uh, these pagan land in the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. In other words, David's doing this because he's just worn out. And maybe Saul will despair from chasing after me, and I shall escape out of his hand. Verse 2, so David arose, went over. He and his 600 men, who we'll find out here in just a second, were with their families as well, uh, who were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, uh, the king of Gath. Very interesting. Gath is one weird place. Goliath came from Gath. Uh, by the way, Gath has a weird story with David. If you will, turn back a couple pages to 1 Samuel 21. Things went weird. It was like a clown. Bizarre clown. Clowns have, are not funny anymore, kind of, are they? Uh, it's creepy clown here in 1 Samuel 21. Verse 10, let me read it just to maybe remind us. Uh, David flees. David rose. He fled that day from Saul. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath. This is the guy that David just now in the text went to in Philistia. 
Verse 11, and the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and, and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you, you see the man is mad. The king is thinking this about David. Uh, why then have you brought him to me? Do I not lack enough madmen uh, that you have brought this fellow, just one more madman in my presence? Uh, shall this fellow come into my house? And, and then these few chapters later, what's David doing? David is going to King Akesh. What's up, man? Like, what's up with this? Um, some geography. Uh, you can look on the screen. You can see that uh, circle here, this circle uh, in that territory. At that time, that was representing basically King Saul's kingdom territory that he had. And then just to the west of that is the, the region of Philistia, um, in this. And then there's the city of Gath within Felicia. It's just right outside of Saul's kingdom. So David is not in uh, the kingdom of Saul. He is right out across the border from it in Gath there. Um, and we then learn of this situation and we're like, David, why are you back with this guy you acted insane with? And why is this guy who you acted insane with, why is he even considering to receive you? It already starts out as a chapter of like, what is happening here? Uh, let's keep reading. And in fact, uh, let's keep reading to the end. Verse 3. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, everyone with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Well, let's pause there. So uh, the uncomfort builds. David, you have two wives? Uh, you may have thought last week that in that part of that text uh, where it makes mention of Abigail and that whole scenario, and then Abigail uh, comes into David's household, that, that uh, he's kind of passing over that because he doesn't really want to talk about it. No, I'm holding it, and, and I'll just say I'm noting it here, and we're going to have a conversation about it later, maybe actually when we get in 2 Samuel later this year, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but as the wives stack up. We're going to have a conversation. But you already have this where it's like, David, by the way, and Michael, Saul's daughter, what's with that? So kind of technically, he's been married three times. Now, what, David? What's up? And then his plan. His plan to get some reprieve from Saul. David, why do you have to go outside of the borders of King Saul. I understand why you would, and you have before, so I'm not saying it's wrong, but, but why? Is God not big enough to protect you? Because God has been big enough to protect you. It's just one more thing for me that I'm like, David, and by the way, the other times, 
we have seen David go to the priest and get God's direction. We don't have any of that here, and so it causes me to go, did he do that? Did he not? We don't know. David, what's happening? It continues. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. There's a good reason for that. He's in Gath. I mean, all his, his men with their households. And it's, it's, a, it's a toll. And so he's like, Give me a town. And uh, and uh, uh, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. By the way, that was a long time in this whole season of David's uh, season with everything going on, on the move. That's a long time. You could say that's back in January of last year before all of the weird began. Remember those days? And the number of the days that David lived in the country was a year and four months, verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersherites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. That kind of helps. So David is raiding, raiding down in this area out here. Verse 9, and David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. By the way, Achish would get part of the goods. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? Uh, By the way, that's a bothersome statement. It's kind of like arrogant guy talk in the locker room. You know, it's not just, you know, it's kind of like, it's not just what's happening and catching up with one another. I mean, look at it. It's like, hey, where'd you raid today? Where'd you uh, plunder and um, kill and slaughter today, David? It's pretty gross conversation. And David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of uh, the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us, so David has done. In other words, David is taking everyone out, even who has an association with it, so word doesn't get out. Like, David, what? Like, this is a slaughter fest. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David. That's concerning. Thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. That's the impression David is clearly giving off. He shall always be my servant 
28 verses 1 and 2. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. The uncomfort was all over this. Verse 6, David and his 600 men and their families are given this town in Ziklag. It's just a little bit below Gath, somewhere around in that area. Verse 7, they're there for a year and four months. Not a month, not four months, but a year and four months. David and his men raid. By the way, it's very interesting in the terminology of the text. When you look at verse 8 and the way the, the writer of the text is telling us where David is fighting, and then you look at what David is saying uh, to King Achish, then in uh, verse 10, um, I'll say this. At best, what David tells King Achish is misleading. At best. Um, David is telling King Achish what King Achish would want to hear. And in this, David is giving the impression that he is making raids on the enemies of Philistia when actually David in reality is making raids on the enemy of Israel. At best, David's words are misleading here. David, what's happening? And then verse 12, Achish is, from his perspective, as David's become an utter stench to his people Israel. Why would you even want to have that? And so David asked Achish, or Achish asked David to, to fight against Israel, and David is like, very well. I'll show you what I can do. This is a bothersome text. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I uh, preach in the Bible the way that I do, because it's texts like this that I would love just to pass over this one. I think uh, in the confusion and the disappointment and just wondering how to handle this and even how to understand it, because I will tell you there are different thoughts on it. I'll just say this. Option one is to justify David. Well, you see, David was just being strategically prudent. You see, he was actually taking out the enemies of Judah and Israel. And so his strategic prudence, this is what he had to do to do that. I mean, he's using real world logic and diplomacy. David is just being politically shrewd. Parents, is this what you would want your kids to understand? That, you know, you see, it's just shrewd to do that. 
I still, to this moment, struggle to understand exactly what David is doing with great confidence. I, I just don't have it. Combined with what's happening and what he's saying and how he's uh, uh, playing this, Again, at best, I think there's no other way to go in this, even if you try to justify David, that he, David is giving partial truth in this. Purposely. David, what happened? Well, he's just tired. It's been 10, 13, 15 years. He's just trying to continue the conquest of Canaan. Okay, maybe so, but I think we could all agree the methodologies are questionable. Justify David. Another thing is just totally dis David. See, I knew it. David's always been a fake. I just knew that. David's deceitful. It finally showed he's a liar. He's unworthy of being chosen by God. And he's unworthy of being seen as a man after God's own heart. Diss him. I knew it would come out. At the end of the day, every leader's a manipulator and a liar. Frankly, I get both reactions. I read through this and I want to justify David. And then I see some of this stuff that makes me uncomfortable and I'm just like, I, I kind of want to just dump you. <laughs> I get this. And I'm still bothered. But one thing I do know is that God's word gives us real. Including last Sunday when we're told that King Saul has to take a restroom break. Wouldn't you want that? in the declarations of God's word to be known of you? Let me tell you about Doug. He was in the restroom, and the Bible tells us about broken people. Let me give you some. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. They sin. Okay, they sin. But then right after that, they go blame-shifting. Yeah, one of the really bad moments in male human history. Hey, Adam, what's up? She made me. <laughs> uh, bro, come on. Eve, Satan made me. Hey, girl, not a great moment for you either. And God calls them both to the table on it. Then you get to Genesis chapter 4. Things have to get better. And we find Cain and Abel. And Cain murders his brother. What? And we go to Genesis 9, post the flood, and amazing Noah gets plastered, naked, and curses his youngest son. Dude. Then you get to Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, and Abraham lies about who his wife is twice. Genesis 37, 
Jacob. Jacob, by the way, was a massive conniver. His sons, his sons sell their brother into slavery. Oh, and then tell dad that he died. How cruel is that? Jonah. Jonah can't get good with telling a group of people about Yahweh because Jonah is too prejudiced about them. He would rather have them get their just desserts. They deserve it. And then God's people through the majority of the 400 years of the book of Judges. It's kind of like, God, whatever. I just kind of want to do whatever's right in my own eyes. A little dash of you, but a big dash of me. And then you get to Solomon and David and the host of wives and concubines. What? Oh, and then in the New Testament it gets better. You know, the disciples. It's like, can't they ever get what Jesus is teaching? Oh, and then a high point for them was the whole thing on the road. Hey, let's argue about who among us is better and greater. Let's, let, let's duke that one out. And then John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he bails mid-missions trip on Paul and Barnabas. I mean, really, of any kind of trip you'd want to be in, that would be a trip you'd want to be in. And John Mark bails. Oh, by the way, the whole Barnabas and Paul thing, they separate from ministry disagreement. Oh, and then Peter, he can't get his disdain for Gentiles out of his ministry paradigm. He just can't get past that until God has to set him straight in it. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about their giving to look impressive. And then the Corinth church messed up. Hey, rich over here, poor over here. Uh, on communion, when we take communion, everybody just come because it's like a hoard of food. Like what's with Corinth and what's going on? And then the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. There were some cool things going on. But there were some messed up things, like the church in Ephesus had lost its first love, Jesus. And then another one of the churches, they had a heresy going on that they were embracing. And then here we are in 1 Samuel 27 with David. David. And yet, God loved them all. And yet, God loved them all. We need to let that sink in. God's word is real. And God's word does not cover up who we are. And God's word does not cover up who our God is.
the text like this that I kind of scratch my head and I go, oh, really, I got to preach this? I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It is profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God, that the teen of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So a question comes out of this is that that means that this text is profitable. How so? I actually think there's a number of ways we could go with this in the text, but I just want for you to know that I'm kind of coming off of this and and seeking to gain and encourage us by my own disappointment with David. What am I talking about? Three things to learn. Number one, Grasp grace. Grasp grace. Friends, I am broken. You are broken. And we are broken. I will disappoint. You will disappoint. We will disappoint. I have and will fail. You have and will fail. We have and will fail. I am not the full package. You are not the full package. We are not the full package. And yet God loves me and you and we. And that is amazing. Utterly amazing. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 5.8, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace 
you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is by grace alone. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man, no woman, no teen can boast, for we are his workmanship. Friend, if you know Christ as a Savior, you and I are a piece of work. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.16, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, Paul says, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And out of this, how should that impact us? Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, let all wrath, let all anger, let all clamor, let all slander be put away from you along with malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I need to hear that. And we need to hear that. Because we are broken. And we are to see things through a lens of our brokenness and God's good, amazing grace. Friends, know this. I'm not talking about excusing sin. That's not the case at all here. But instead, it starts from a place of grace. Dale Ruff Davis says this. The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox. I like that. So they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not have clean material to work with. He's talking about this text with David. And don't get sentimental when you think, sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it is only sinful, i.e. sinful clay the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. As long as we wallow, however subtly, in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible, never tremble before this God, and never delight in this God. We must get a grip on grace. Radiant as we increasingly grasp grace, we will increasingly second, as I heard it years ago, drop the rock. John 8. Teacher, This woman has been caught in adultery. 
in the law, Moses commanded to stone such a woman. What about the guy? So what do you say, Jesus, teacher? Jesus has a few words, and then he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Drop the rock. By the way, can you imagine the sound in that event? Thud. 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 Not excusing sin. But a starting place of grace. Imagine what would happen if home in homes if some drop if some rocks were dropped. I'm talking about those kinds of rocks that maybe you've been kind of tossing in your hand. Maybe put it in a pocket. But you still got it close by and ready to unload with. And some days you pull it back out, and you play with it again. And it's time to drop the rock. I come to a text like this and I look at David and I'm disappointed in David. The longer I've spent with it, I'm disappointed in me that I'm so disappointed with David. Grasp grace. Drop the rock. And lastly, just along with that, I just broken together. We're broken together. Friends, David is not and has never been the hero. There's only one hero in the scripture, and that's God. We're the misfit island. That this amazing God would put up with and bear with and love on and pour grace out on to use misfit island people like us. Well, how amazing is that? And the more I get to know people and come to understand stories of life and the things that they've gone through and the hurts and 
straight up. I need to grasp grace more. And I think you probably do as well. Because we struggle to grasp grace, I want to suggest start there. Start there. Start from the thinking of a place of how God has been so good to us. By the way, that so sounds like Matthew chapter 7. Get the log out of your eye. And in that, there are times that we address things, and there are times that, that things happen, and, and that's okay. But, but I, I think in it, uh, just from my own life and from us uh, as people, I, I think there's probably more rocks need to be dropped than we acknowledge. And if today is a day upon which you need to come before the Lord and drop some rocks, drop them. And let's proceed ahead together as a broken people with an amazing God. An amazing, amazing God. Because here's the hope. God used David. And David was a man after God's own heart. Man, there's hope. And so, Lord, we ask that you would come near us and help us. We struggle. We struggle with grace. We struggle to receive grace. We struggle to give grace. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, though we're broken, we just... We still struggle. Made righteousness, made righteous through you and because of you. And that's what even makes it more sad. That we can be just like David. God, I would ask that you would help us to be humble, to be loving, to be forgiving, to be pressing forward, to be confessing, to be encouraging, to be understanding, to grasp grace to drop the rock and to love the fact of being a people who are broken together. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.